You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruvain Yeshua Pupko of Beth Israel, Beth Aaron of Cote St. Luke. I guess, Rabbi, if somebody would be uh, going through the internet looking for your congregation, one of the ways he would get it is by looking under the word S H U L, right? Shul. I think that's I think that's part of, I think that's part of your website. Is Shul. our domain name is www.shul.org. We registered our domain name uh, long before there was even an internet. We did that in the early 70s. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, I don't think, was born yet. Uh, and uh, we registered it quite early. Yes, yes. yes. I, I'm surprised you didn't register it right after World War II when we had those giant computers. You remember those punch cards that, yes. the, that the bombers would get? In right. So my email address is actually rabbi at shul.org. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about that term. Which I think is, you know, Enhances my my clout and credibility having that email address. It's, it's super original, though. Here, here's yeah. the point, though. <laughs> Shul, Shul, as I think we had in one of our previous conversations, and I think uh, our listeners who are savvy enough can go to the platform's website and search for Emeritus Rex. And I think you're going to find the discussion that we had a couple of years ago about education in the Shul, because as I pointed out, the term comes from the, the term shul is the term shula, school. This was right. not a, a place necessarily of uh, a mokum tefillah. It was a mokum of limud, uh, the shul. The shul is the place where a school. Now, it, but, but obviously the, the, the term itself, the Yiddishization and Americanization of that term is a place of prayer, a place of congregations, a place of weddings, of a, of a social hall. But I think that there is still an aspect of going to shul as a place of school. Look, we all know how beautifully uh, Philip Roth uh, described it in his incredible little short story called um, The Conversion of the Jews, where you have a Talmud Torah uh, that's housed in a shul. And Ozzy Freeman, the little boy, if you remember, uh, takes off and goes to the top of the building and, and the whole fire department and the shamus of the shul have to show up so th that th those days, of course, that Philip Roth wrote about in the 50s might have been relevant then, but we don't look at the shul as a school anymore. Uh, the Talmud Torahs have basically been overtaken by all different types of day schools, Orthodox, conservative, uh, non-affiliated. But yet you, let's say, for example, in Beth Israel, Beth Aaron, or any of your rabbinical colleagues, often have to minister to a flock of congregants whose children are attending schools. Now, this is, we're recording this, Rabbi, uh, during the week of back to school. So I thought, it would, I, I thought it would be a great time to talk about how you as a rabbi have to, first of all, navigate the, all the various schools in the community who are probably different schools are serving different congregants. And Dora's box of quite, <laughs> there's a lot of issues here. And I would say that every, community has its own unique dynamic, you know, in that you have some communities uh, where nearly every kid of the shul is in the same school. And there's a tight relationship uh, between 
a school in their school because all the parents who hang out, you know, at the carpool, all see each other and show on Shabbos. The staff of the school is davening in their school. So there are some communities like that where, you know, it may not be 100% or even 80, but there's, a, there's an overwhelming majority that come from one shul, they go to one school. And then in those cases, often the rabbi of the shul has a very significant role to play. But often it's much more diverse than that, where most of the kids in my shul go. Um, it, it, it's not only just do most of my kids go there, is are most of the kids in that school from me, from my shul? And the answer to the first question is yes, but the second answer to the great question is no. In other words, while the while the while while there is a a school that predominates amongst my members, my members don't predominate amongst you know the, the parent body of the school. A lot of other rabbis, a lot of the shuls that uh, that, that populate the, um, the the school I'm thinking of. So it, it's it's a different dynamic. Um, the role, you know, it's interesting. Montreal's changed a lot in the last three and a half decades that I've been there. One of the rules of thumb used to be in Montreal that if you that if you wanted to figure out who a Jew was, you couldn't ask the same question you should you could ask in St. Louis or or, or Cleveland. There you ask, what show do you go to? And as soon as the person told you, you knew exactly where they were on the spectrum of Jewish life or in the smaller spectrum of Orthodox life, you would know immediately who they were. In Montreal, that didn't work at all because our Orthodox synagogues, like Orthodox synagogues in America half a century earlier, had a lot of members who were not Orthodox in practice. And the way you found out who a Jew was in Montreal was by asking them what school their kids go to because that was the surest barometer of where this family stood on the spectrum of Jewish life. Because if they told you it was the Hebrew Academy, it meant they were modern Orthodox, if they were Herzliya, it meant they were strongly traditional, but maybe not Shabbos Shabbos. If they went to Bialik, it meant they were, they, they, they were less uh, religiously involved. You know, it's a, you, you knew immediately who they were by the school. The, the school was the barometer. That's not so much the case anymore because, like other places in North America, Orthodox synagogues have become more and more monolithic in, in who's in the benches. Um, and, and so it's not that, you know, it's not that clear. It, so it, it's clear now, you know, if you identify what show you're at, who you are. But it, it's a tough question because how much do rabbis be involved in schools? Schools jealously guard their autonomy. Uh, the leaders of the school, both lay and professional, you know, don't always welcome outside influence or outside, uh, you know, interventions from the outside. It's not, it's not that simple. Uh, some schools are eager for it, for the assistance and help rabbis do. Over the years, I have been sometimes deeply involved, sometimes not at all, in what's going on in the neighborhood schools, uh, both the Orthodox day schools and others. It really it depends on, on, on who the administrators are that year, the head of school. It also depends on the dynamic of the community. But um, there is a role to play for rabbis. I think that role is best played by a group of rabbis, at least in my situation, rather than one rabbi. Uh, because, as I said, you know, the schools in town draw kids from all, you know, a large number of different synagogues. And when we have something to say about the education and where we think things are headed and you know, where the successes are and, and, and where, where things are going so well, 
when we speak with one voice, it's certainly much more persuasive. But it's a uh, so, so you're talking about something like a vadachinuch. In other words, there's right. an there's an agreement among let's say where I was I spent 20 years in Chicago, which is is very vibrant, uh, a very uh, strong Jewish community, but is small enough that there could be a vadachinuch. There could be an associated Talmud Torahs where you could have a cheder, a chassidish chabad school, and a and a litvish cheder. And a modern Orthodox school, a Zionistic school, and they all answer in a way to the associated Talmud Torahs and a Vada Chinuch that is comprised of members from all different stripes, of rabbis from all different stripes. Um, and, 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 and as you said, a small community, even a, a, a strong small community or a medium sized community, is able to do that. And, 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 I, and I guess, let me just say one more aspect here having a Vada Chinuch gives you at least a forum and a sense, hey, I'm not just meddling into you because we're we are the Vada Chinuch of your of your school, right? As opposed to why is this rabbi calling me? Why is he nosing in and something that's not his business? Um, so would you suggest that communities should have a Vada Chinuch that the rabbis of, of all the uh, the major rabbis in the community should be members of? Is that what you would say? I, I, listen, I, every every community is different and uh the politics of one are not the politics of another, but as a general rule, I think rabbis do have something to contribute to to school administrators being able to do their job. But let me explain what I mean. Let's, let's say, you know, I see the kids in my show who come primarily from one day school, and I see, you know, some of them are dominating okay, the rest of them aren't dominating. So I can talk to the school and about, um, you know, uh, you know, maybe we can do something together for Tefillah. Right to, to enhance the wheel. Maybe the way you guys are doing it could be improved upon. Um, you know, attention to diving, which is you know, you know, there are some kids who are great at it, and some kids just seem to be bystanders, bystanders to it. And I don't blame schools for that at all. I think it's that's an activity that's more up to the parents than it is to a school. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, Jay Goldman and others have written about this uh, about why davening should even be part of a school day. Right. Um, you know, you know, as someone who was in uh, the school system for many years, it is in many ways the most frustrating part right. of of your day. Because th- th- let me just put it out on the table for people who don't understand: the potential for negative interaction is very great. Let's, you, let's say in a public school, in a public school, you start with homeroom. Homeroom is a real pleasant place. Everyone's hanging out. People are just it's sort of like calisthenics, like Jack O'Lane would do before he was ready uh, to get really into learning. So a homeroom is sort of like, yeah, it's a way to, to say you're here, a way to sort of like whisper to the guy next to you and get ready for the next real class. But in a, a religious school, and maybe even a conservative school as well, uh, davening starts the day, and the kids are not, they don't, they're half tired, uh, they're half asleep, I mean, they don't really care about it. And what happens is, is that the rebellion, the teachers, the monitors, they end up uh, connected to the kids in what's usually a negative fashion. You have, yes. You have no, your... Dopping is a huge challenge. I mean, I've gone, you know, through different, you know, ways of thinking about this, but it could be we make a mistake by putting all the kids in the same room together to dominate. Maybe every class should be dominating by themselves. Then you got a problem with, with you know, with, with girls and boys together. I mean, it, it's not, these are, there aren't any simple solutions here. And um, 
What I have noticed over the years, because as you insist on reminding our listeners that I am a decrepit old man at the at the beginning of every uh, uh, podcast, but it's <laughs> that I've been around for a very long time. What I've noticed over the years is the the kids who end up, you know, davening with Yerushalayim, okay, who care about davening, are the kids who sat next to their mommies and daddies in shul and watched their mommies and daddies daven. Okay, if the mommies and daddies aren't davening with their kids, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great challenge. The other pathway in, like, you know, like every other shoulder is a youth minion, and the kids who get engaged and inspired by a good leader there, who are then empowered to lead, uh, davening and, and Lane and all that stuff, that's also a wonderful route. But, you know, if you come to Shul and you're sitting there talking to your friends and your kid is in the hall running around, you know, it, it ain't, and it's, it's not going to work. Right. But, 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 but the main question, though, is again, it was sort of a side question is, do you believe that davening should be part of, of, of school day? Maybe I don't believe it is. I, I, honestly, I don't think a lot of smart people have thought about this and, and try to figure it out. I, I don't know how to do it well. I, I don't know. I mean, what, what's the alternative? That all the kids wake up and go to school in the morning with their parents? That's not going to happen. Yeah, right. But you're right. That isn't going to happen. But education is really not about about teaching them, although, again, in religious schools, they'll tell you we have to teach them how to daven, we have to teach them the nusach, we have to teach them about how the importance of the siddur. Uh, I, I think a way has to be figured out, especially on the high school level and, you know, middle school, I guess we call it the states, middle school and above, where maybe a possible improvement could come about if the people davening it was the smaller groups. And again, I don't know how that fits into a schedule of logistics for classrooms and boys and girls. I don't know how to do it. But I do know is that when you put 200 kids in a room together, you know, a lot of the kids are going to be uh, are not going to be participating. And uh, and it's tough. And you don't have enough adults to monitor to really see what's going on. And I think most importantly is not only do you have kids who are bystanders, but their only involvement in davening is to be yelled at by somebody for not being involved. You know, it's, it becomes very negative. Um, and that's not something anybody wants. I, I, I'll tell you what I did. Uh, and I mean, I was the architect of it and was adopted by one of the schools that I was teaching in, which was I took a page out of the Rambam's book. Uh, the Rambam famously in Fostat or in what was the Jewish suburb of Cairo, of modern day Cairo, um, what's known as Cairo now, uh, was he developed a system, that's the better way right. to say it. So basically what happened was when they would get to Ga'al Yisrael and the Amida, the Chazan would start and say the Shemona Esrei out loud. And you could either daven together with the Chazan uh, quietly, or you could just listen. And that worked because one of the major uh, elements that, that was causing a, so much negativity was not, you know, faking your Shemona Esrei, um, talking while other people were... No, I, I would say the following, that at a certain age, for sure, the more you do out loud together, more like our Spartan brothers and sisters, uh, is, is certainly the best thing. I mean, I know Spartan Jews who that an Ashkenazi may look down on for not knowing, you know, what, what, how many, you know, Sais or Nesivas, but these guys, I tell you, the Spartan in my community, and I know this, this is as a general rule, their kids, even if they're not 100% from, their kids know how to daven because they sat with their parents, they said everything out loud, and they know the daven. They do know it. And it's a, 
remarkably beautiful thing to see. And we in the Ashkenazi community who spend, you know, every 30 seconds we say a line out loud and the rest were mumbling, a kid is daydreaming. You, you, as you said about this monastery, that's, you know, the reality for a lot of doctors, unfortunately. So they're just looking around. And, and the way to keep people engaged is your brilliant idea. It was, uh, I, I think they call it the Kim Levitz maneuver. Yes, it's, yeah, it's been adopted now throughout North yeah, America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, what about I think the, they, some people have shorted to Convelia, I believe. The, the, they call no. it Convelia. But the, the point is, right, well, you're right. I, the only way to do this right is to do it out loud and together. Yeah. But, but let, let me move to another topic, uh, which let's say, as you say, you, you, you have to be diplomatic. But let's say, and even I, who am sort of a rabbi, because there's a number of Sfardim that who you mentioned who look at me as their educator, and they come to me often with the issues that they're having with the day school here. And it, it's hard for me to know what the next step is. When you are approached by someone and they're saying, Rabbi, my, my kids are, are not doing well. The, the, the school wants to throw my kid out. Um, my, my kid is, is acted up. Um, what can you do? The school isn't, isn't really uh, acquiescing to my needs. They aren't really involved the way they should be. So when, you're, when that comes to your table and, and, and a, a person is, is giving us, spilling their guts about how they're suffering, what do you do? Do you, do, do you feel hampered? Do you feel like hamstrung that you aren't able to call the school? Like what, what would you do in that case? Listen, I, it breaks my heart when I hear stories about kids in schools who aren't happy and aren't doing well. Because the, I, the kids, they're, they're overwhelmingly, the kids are good kids. And sometimes it's not a school, it's a class. Sometimes it's not even a class, but a couple of friends, and they're being bullied or teased or whatever you know terminology people use today. Um, they're not connected to the teacher. They're not connect. You know, they're, they're not connected to the, the books in front of them. It, it's it can be enormously frustrating. And and you think about how many hours these kids are spending in these buildings, and, and what a beautiful opportunity that is. But how hard it is to really take advantage of that opportunity. The kids today are radically different than they were 15 years ago. The attention span is so different. Their expectations are different. Their parents are different. And so much has changed. And I'm not sure we've invested in the Orthodox community enough in professional development to help teachers. Teachers want professional development. They do want it. They want guidance. They want a head of school, a principal who's able to sit in a classroom and watch them do their job and sit with them and give them constructive advice for the future. They want that. But I'm not sure there's enough of that going on because from the time some of these teachers started teaching to, to till today, the world's changed, you know, three times over. And, and and they need more help. They need more guidance also. Listen, the oldest thing you can say about the, in the modern Orthodox community, the biggest challenge is finding teachers because, you know, what more Orthodox family in TDAC you know, jumps for joy when their son or daughter comes home in 10th grade and says, Mommy, Daddy, I want to be a teacher. Uh, you know, they basically rise to clean and so, shit. So, so even though you say your heart goes out to them and, and you feel bad, and, and let's be honest, both of us weren't exactly model students in high school, and I, I guess we turned out all right. So we understand that many times people are blackballed and assumed right. to be worthless when they really have a lot of potential. But so you would say that although you would listen sympathetically 
sometimes you agree. I with. think it's very hard to change the culture of a school. It's very hard, you know, to create a world where every teacher is inspiring and can connect every kid. I think what parents, you know, as long as I sound, I'm starting to sound like an alcoholic anonymous, anonymous, what I mean when, in saying the following. I think what parents need to do is to focus almost exclusively on the things they have control over. And what they have control over is their own relationship with their children, their own time with their children, their own davening with their children, their own learning with their children. And to understand that no matter how good our schools can be, it'll always be limited to the impact they can have. We're putting 24 kids in a room together to expect it to pay attention for 45 minutes an hour. There's a teacher who's posted be able to inspire kids no matter what level they're on, no matter what background they had, no matter how smart they are or whatever. And yet the only what's really meaningful in a kid's development will be the time they spend learning and davening and just being with their parents doing Jewish things. And if that's done in a in a happy way, in, in a loving way, that is ultimately what shapes our kids much more than any teacher. Or or in what you're saying is is that if the school, for example, is saying, we can't deal with your child, uh, and the parent feels there's an attrition that is pushing the kid out of the school, and they come to you, what you're going to do is say, look, don't wring your hands so strongly over the school issue. Try to control what you can, which means... Because again, no matter what you're going to... You're going to go to a school, you're going to complain... You're going to be one of 6,000 parents that complain that week. You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's, an, and, it, 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 and I sympathize with schools because it's tough to find teachers. It's tough to improve the team. It takes a lot of work to change a, a culture of a school. It's really hard to do. And, and therefore, let's say when you've been pushed to the wall, have you ever gone in and, and made, picked up the phone and said, yeah, sure. This yeah, is Coco. I mean, you've got to keep this kid in the school. Otherwise, who knows? Hundred percent, I've done that. Hundred, yeah, for sure. But I, I would say another thing. We also have to think about other moments in a kid's life. You know, there are some kids, and I, this is heresy to say, it, and I don't think I've ever suggested this more than once in my in my life, where a kid might be better off in public school. What I mean by that is, if a kid goes to public school for six hours a day, but they have a wonderful school environment a wonderful youth group. They have, you know, the right tutoring or teaching what's going on after school. And the most important element is six or seven weeks in the summer in a holistic firm environment in a camp where they're dominating and learning and everything about their Jewish life is therefore fun or almost everything and not, oh my God, you know, I got to pass the test. Maybe some kids, that, maybe for some kids that's better. Uh, yes, I mean, clearly, as COVID has taught us, alternate aspects of teaching and schooling, uh, whether they've been successful or not, they've definitely been tried. And, and, and I, I still think, again, if there's a, a survey taken that's done in a scientific way, I think we're going to find that there's been a, quite a drop off in religious school attendance. Uh, past, well, I, I think some places experienced a great uptick because they were open while others were closed. So some 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 Jewish schools really benefited from it in some ways. Well, that's true, but yet I I can tell you from anecdotal uh, anecdotally, it seems that many uh, went to homeschooling because they couldn't stand uh, right. virtual schooling and COVID have discovered, hey, this ain't, ain't so bad. Um, 
who says we need uh, who says we need again, especially since sometimes if you go to public school or you get homeschooled, you could then save your money and pay for what Rav Salvechik and other great Gedolia Yisrael had, which was private tutors, right? Which was right. The, that was the European style, where the people that were wealthy had, you know, the young kid had a, a tutor who would teach them. Actually, uh, Rabbi Salvechik's tutor is actually really available. He is available to hire. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, he's you look, look him up under the Methuselah uh <laughs> mentors of no, but it's, 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 how is it possible? By the way, he was a Chabadsker, by the way. He was a Lubavitcher. That's true, I know that. If, if, how is it possible for schools to really excel? You put all these different kids, all different backgrounds and talents and abilities in a room together with somebody who's supposed to day after day after day, captivate their attention. I mean, in what world is that a realistic expectation? I mean, if I can keep you interested in what I have to say for 20 minutes, I have to say, you know, shut the other. I mean, it's, it's, you know, how do you do that? I mean, does any rabbi have the ability to day after day? It's not easy to do. Okay, this, this is like a whole different discussion about the boxing of individuals into these little units and to having seven or eight of them and assuming this is going to create good citizens and smart fellows and young tummies, something that people are thinking about and perhaps they're realizing that, that it's not working. Let's go to the last point here, which is, and I'll tell you, one of the things, the mistakes, one of the biggest mistakes I made, I'll preface it, is that when I took a job in a school, I, was, I moved at the same time to a community that most of my students lived in that community and died. Oh, that's a terrible mistake. Right, yeah. right, right. right. Yeah. And I, I, it was a terrible mistake. Um, and I know that often that's what principals know what to do. Don't live in the place where most of the people well, go. Let's be blunt. Jewish parents can be horrible. So uh, they think they're smart. Someone told them their opinions are valuable, although they are bereft of any credentials that would uh, justify that thought. And, uh, and, and, and listen, Jews can be very difficult, very aggressive, very, you know, I remember I told somebody who came to Montreal to take a job as a head of school. I said, if you want to have a successful year, it's very simple. The first time someone walks into your office to complain, you throw that family and their kids out of the school. And then people will behave. Okay, it's like when you go to prison, you have to pick a fight with the strongest guy in the, in the yard in order to gain respect from your fellow inmates, right? Because our parents are not always well-behaved. And schools, and, and parents care about their school a lot more than they care about their children. And they care about their kids' education more than they care about the rabbi in the city. And that's why the schools will be a magnet for criticism and scrutiny that a school won't be. And therefore, it's the toughest job. The three toughest jobs in the Jewish community are head of school, kosher caterer, shul rabbi. Because what people care about the most in life are their kids, their food, and then third, their daughter. <laughs> right, right, right. And, that's un and, and what's unfortunate, I think, as, as you probably know, is that there's a merry-go-round of this head of schools. That these head of schools, you know, the, the, the salaries, at least years ago were, were like exploding in terms of the, of the figures. And therefore, that was the number one expense that many of these schools had. Right. And then they would give these guys a one or two year contracts. And then these guys would move on. 
and 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 and, and the school suffered because of that because they never really had time to imprint uh, their distinct vision. Because the problem is, you the head of school has to spend half their time disciplining the parents. That's the problem. Because the parents are some, in many cases, out of control, and uh, you know, threats and complaints, and you know, it, it, unless you have people who are known to be credible, who are known to have secure positions and have a record, you know, there's often not the respect given to them that is deserved. Yeah, well, well look, we, we realize that when you compare this to public schools where you go for free, and here you are in a, a I don't know what the right. tuitions are in Montreal, but I can tell you here in New Jersey. If you don't get aid, if you don't apply for a scholarship, it's twenty thousand dollars per kid. Right. So if you have someone who's paying full tuition, and let's say he has three or four children or five children, so that person is putting a hundred thousand dollars into the school's coffers every right. year. Um, you don't think that that person is going to of course that's a huge yeah. entitlement. That person feels entitled to to raise hell when they're. But one thing I can promise you is that. If we allowed our school administrators to be a little freer of these dynamics, the schools would improve dramatically. They have more time to invest in what they should be doing, which is the quality and cleanup of education. And unfortunately, they spend too much time, you know, hand wringing and hand holding with parents. And which, and, and again, is there going to is there a way to somehow slim down uh, the schools in a way that we don't need to charge that much for parents to feel that they're so entitled? You know, it, it's sort of like an unending spiral. I have some educators, and so I always try to give them the respect they deserve, um, and uh, and and I think that that message comes across. We try to celebrate Jewish education in, in meaningful ways. We talk about it certainly at the uh, at bar mitzvahs about the schools and, and, and gratitude to teachers, but um, uh, I, I think that. We in the, the modern Orthodox community, the bit, number one challenge we have in North America going forward is creating a culture, an environment, and the money necessary to sustain a cadre of committed and talented uh, Jewish educators. Because right now we do not have them. I mean, you walk into any modern Orthodox school, you will find uh, that many of the teachers are either uh, not from that same ideological stream or, or, or not qualified the way they should be. And we need to elevate the stature of teachers, pay them better, and recruit them better. And which, again, the, the question is, where is it going to come from? As uh, we, we, we're, we seem to have entered an era where we're trying to uh, tighten the belt, we're trying to compress, we're trying to streamline things. And you're talking about dangling some sort of carrot in front of someone that would, like you say, uh, they're from Teaneck. They're from, uh, they're being pushed for uh, the types of jobs that are going to pay six figures. And you want them to hang that up on a nail and say, hmm, I think I'm going to go into teaching. Right. No, it's tough. Sister. It's tough. Yeah. And, and, but again, I think, as I said before, with this, I, you know, is real, is that instead of banging our head against the walls, against problems that are, you know, unlikely to be solved. Let's think about the things we can solve. And that's how we interact with our kids, how we learn with our kids, how we dive with our kids, how we celebrate Yiddishkeit in our home. And I think we need to invest more time and energy over the things of which we're, where we over the things we have control. And I, I, what I am getting from you is is that we have to tone down our anxiety 
over our kids' success in schools as well. If as soon as the kid, for example, as soon as the kid uh, comes home, the child comes home, the parents are all over them about what was school like, do your homework, et cetera, et cetera. The child is never out of school. The child right. is he's right. Listen, when I was in elementary school, I went to school from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. Kids today are going from eight to five. I mean, it's insane. We burden our kids too much. They don't have the mental capacity to concentrate that long. It's become a warehouse for babysitting uh, in, in so many cases. And uh, kids need more free time. Kids need time to think and to roam. We're born free. <laughs> yes, as Joy Adamson taught us, yes. <laughs> so, um, well, I, I, you know, I, I'm ready on that note to uh, stroke Elsa a little bit. And we shall... Catch you, Mirza Shem. Hopefully, everybody who's listening uh, is is having a very wonderful first week of school, enjoying uh, the nachas, uh, and also, as Rabbi Pukko says to us, don't get too anxious about things. Uh, stay within what you have the power to control. Take care, everybody. We'll see you again next time. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.